0: RECORD COLLECTIONS AND RECOLLECTIONS, OUT OF THE BOX, WITH MIA
1: HULL ON FBI RADIO.
0: Hey, Mia Hull here for Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to delve into the record collection of one person and talk about the stories that come with it. We're in the thick of lockdown in Sydney, which means my guest and I are recording from our homes. Each of us are coming to you from Gadigal country, so I'd like to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Isabel Reinecke is my guest today. Isabel is a movement lawyer, someone who uses the power of the law to serve social movements. A lot of that happens within the Grata Fund, which she is the founder and executive director of. And on top of that, Isabel is the 2021 Women's Leadership Institute of Australia Fellow and the 2016 Churchill Fellow. She's also been nominated for a Walkley Award and was a finalist in the United Nations of Australia Media Peace Award. One of those young people that really makes you think about where you are in life. Isabel, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. And <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. When we look at your story, it looks like you've always stood up for others.
1: What's your earliest memory of doing that? That's an interesting question. And I think, <laughs> um, I mean, I think also like the question in itself reflects something about me, which is standing up for others in that I actually have an extraordinarily privileged background to myself in that, you know, the the early memories I have of social justice fights were about other people and and weren't about injustices that I was facing. Um, And that has been um, something to really grapple with and understand kind of in this sort of work and and, um, has been a journey for me. But the the early experiences I have, um, I think the first piece of activism I did, which is so kind of Weird and precocious. When I look back at it, I can't believe I was gutsy enough to do it. Is there was ABC funding cuts, of course, um, of children's programming um, in the early 90s, um, and I surveyed my school um, and my 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 primary school fellow students and said. You know who? What? What are your favourite ABC shows? What are What are the shows you don't want to be cut? And then wrote a letter to the editor with this like petition for why ABC funding shouldn't be cut for children's shows, <laughs> which is sort of like a. It's kind of silly, really, but it's um yeah. When I look back at it, I think oh okay, like I was kind of being a, a, an activist even at, you know, a kind of strangely young age on kind of, I mean, I guess, remains zeitgeisty.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in your home and your family dynamic as well. Did your parents get behind these projects and encourage this kind of activism that you were doing? Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's definitely, you know, having I have two parents who are very politically engaged, both journalists themselves, at, at least at the beginning of their careers, and, and they met actually at the Finn Review um, in the late seventies, early eighties, and I think that kind of being journalist and and you know it, that comes with um, a lot of political engagement and awareness of, of social issues that are around you. So I think that probably filtered through, um, and even my you know my grandparents on my mum's side, my grandfather's a uniting church minister, and. He's part of the Uniting Church. He was previously part of the Lutheran Church, but he he left because the Lutheran Church in Australia still won't ordain women. So, um, you know, for a man who's turning 90 in November, he was kind of pretty ahead of his time. I, I want to talk about the backdrop to these stories, the place where these seeds were planted.
0: You grew up on the south coast, pretty close to Wollongong, what was it like to have a childhood there?
1: Yeah, I um, don't think I realised how lucky I was to grow up on the South Coast until I got a lot older. Um, yeah, I grew up down... For first When I was first born, I lived in Scarborough. My parents had a block of land just by the Scarborough pub, which lots of people will now know because it's a great pub right on the cliffs uh, at Scarborough overlooking the ocean. But but then it was sort of not what it is now, which is almost an outer suburb of Sydney. Then it was sort of like not a lot of houses and still a lot of coal mining and and the end of of coal mining um, in that region at that time. Um, And it just meant that I, and I then lived in Austinmere, which is, you know, just just slightly south of that, which is a beautiful beach set behind, you know, a, a beautiful escarpment that overlooks down to, Bulai and uh, um, and then onto Wollongong and then you have kind of these beautiful forests. And I grew up in a house on a block that was surrounded by bushland, and I you know I still listen to the sounds of trees blowing in the wind at night. It's like if have a really windy night is very comforting to me, because that really reminds me of like that of, of being really like in the bushland. And I think, you know, when I was 15 I was like, oh I hate being here, this is so boring. I want to be in <laughs> Sydney all the time my friend's like, you're going to regret saying this. And like, they yeah. were completely, completely right. Like, I wish that we still um, had our place down there. And um, yeah, it's, it's been funny, I think, especially with COVID, like, realising how important the natural environment is to me, like, I, I haven't really thought of myself as a super outdoorsy person, I think people would kind of laugh, who know me, <laughs> to think <laughs> of that. But um, yeah, I think the natural environment is really so important and grounding. Um, and I think that that, you know, that was the context in which I grew up and I was very fortunate for that.
0: Let's nod to this beautiful, romantic, idyllic part of the world with some music that comes from the same region. You've chosen a Shining Bird song to play on the show today, Isabel. Tell me about this one.
1: Yeah, this is a beautiful um, song, Distant Dreaming by Shining Bird. Um, a bunch of guys who grew up, I believe, are in the same sort of area as me. Um, it just really captures... Um, captures the place it's it's a music that makes sense for for the place for anyone who's been there you should go on a road trip and 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 play their albums and and get a sense of it on
0: fbi radio 94.5 this is distant dreaming by shining bird listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or streaming via the website or the podcast. That song was Distant Dreaming. It was by Shining Bird, a band from the South Coast, which is where my guest on Out of the Box today, Isabel Reinecke, is from. Isabel, before that song, we talked about privilege and how standing up for people means tackling adversity that you're not necessarily facing yourself. When did
1: you first become aware of that privilege? It's funny because the language that we use now is so kind of commonplace, at least in certain kind of circles, you know, the language of privilege and, and understanding that. Um, but I think, you know, the I didn't have that sort of language to understand my world when I was younger. And I think I, I did, though, have a sense of like random fortune and good luck from a really young age. I remember I had Uh, this book that was like a science kind of book. I don't really know what it was. I wish I could find it that my parents had given me and it had like all these different activities in it. And one of the activities was a little bag of rice that was like, you know, 100 grams or something, tiny little bag of rice or less, I guess, um, 20 grams of rice. And it had a little um, spin dial flicker on it and you could spin the dial and you could, and it was a pie chart sitting on top of this little rice packet and your chance of landing in a place where you had more food security or access to f- to more than that little bag of rice every day in your life was such a random, tiny little sliver that you could never get the flicker to actually hit that slice of, of the pie chart, which basically, you know, was saying to me as a young kid, like, you are crazily statistically unlikely to be born in the world that you were born into where food security is not an issue for you in your own home you know you've never had to worry about you know where your next meal is coming from and I think that that really viscerally stuck in me that you know any fortune that I had was not necessarily for my own doing it was just a random strike of luck and I think I always had a sense of like well that's just random. I didn't do anything to deserve that. Like that's nothing to do with me. And so I think that always gave me a sense of if people were not, didn't have that strike of luck, that also had nothing to do with them, that they had no reason to have caused that. And I guess motivated me to kind of see injustice and want to do something about it because I often would see like, well, the chances of that person of having, you know, any, you know, them contributing in any way to being born in a certain circumstance is, is ridiculous. So um, I think that did really sort of affect me from a pretty young age, but I didn't have that language. Like, it was more of a language of, like, this is, like, random, crazy, like, statistically <laughs> impossible luck that I got born in the conditions that I got born into. That's incredible that,
0: yeah, book has had such an effect on on who you've become and you're talking about it being a motivator for you let's talk about that motivation and where you channel that when you were in this space let's go to high school and looking forward to what your career was going to be what what were you dreaming of becoming
1: actually nothing to do with what I do now really (laughs) um in school I thought I wanted to be a psychologist I my grandmother was a psychologist Um, and found her very inspiring. She, She did her degree once her kids had kind of grown up. Um, and I think, you know, I, it turned out to be often the person at school that friends would come and chat to and, and be the person that they would sort of get consolation from. And people would say, oh, you'd be such a great counselor. And I guess I took that to heart and thought, oh yeah, I could do that. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I kind of, I, I loved Ian McEwan books, like Ian McEwan books often have like a psychological element to them, like of some kind of psychiatric condition. And I thought, oh, like I find that really interesting. Um, so I think I had a sense of, wanting to do something that was with people like i i knew that people were what were interesting to me and helping people work through challenging situations but i hadn't yet had the awakening that i think came later at uni where i was able to see through my law degree how i could join the dots between things that i i enjoyed doing and and felt passionate about and and how to apply them in the world because you know um throughout university sorry, without throughout high school i always felt and I think I was, like, a little bit of a kind of outsider in a sense that, like, in my friendship group, I was sort of the one that everyone was like, oh, Isabel, like, loves politics, loves the news, like, she's kind of the one that's, like, really um, into current affairs and, you know... With the journalist parents. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I guess. And, like, you know, always would watch the 6.30 SBS news and the 7 o'clock news and, like, I kind of had that reputation and I I was is because I was really passionate about news and politics. I found it so fascinating and, like, enraging, actually. This was sort of, um, I guess I was sort of at the tail end of the, the Howard era towards the end of my high school and, um, you know, was just constantly frustrated by, by public policy decisions that were being made. And it wasn't until later at uni I realised, like, oh, this could be more than just a passion. You can actually do stuff about, about these things and, and have um, an impact.
0: Let's fast forward to university. You went on to study psychology and law at ANU. What was that like?
1: I loved it. And I am such an ANU nerd. Like, <laughs> I have to. I just love that university. It was such a good place for me. And I think, you know, I figured out a lot of things about what I wanted to do in the world and who I wanted to be in the world by, by being there and being, I think, particularly in the Canberra context. You know, ANU as a law school... Um, you can't help but be aware of the policy and power context that goes with law, and I think law can be something that can be studied and can be quite can be taught in a way that's quite removed from the reality of law, which is that it's all about power. Um, and I think there's something about being in Canberra that meant that you like kind of more cognizant of what that meant, what that power was, who held it, what it meant, who who moved it, um, and who shaped it.
0: It it seems like you've been
1: listing all of
0: these factors that create like the perfect Isabel Reinecke storm <laughs> and for the next part of the show I want to talk about what that perfect storm looks like and what you've
1: gone on to create but first a song <laughs> what have you picked next I've picked LCD sound system Daft Punk is playing at my house which just absolutely sums up the uni years of, of partying and, and having fun and it's just a, it's just the best song so it's a good one
0: is playing at my house. It was LCD sound system on Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull and today I am joined by the Grada Fund founder and executive director Isabel Reinecke. When did you first start working in corporate law?
1: I started working in corporate around the GFC. So that was when I very first started. And then I kind of finished a couple of years of uni and went back to it. So it it was sort of a um a job that you couldn't not take. <laughs> Being the GFC, it was like not a great time to, to be a, a law grad trying to find a new job. Um and I had a good offer. Um and I enjoyed my time there actually. Um it's just not really where I ever expected or thought that I would end up. I um spent a lot of my time doing pro bono work. Like I loved the pro bono work and that's really where my heart was so it was you know working with people who survivors of domestic violence or sexual servitude um, or non- even just nonprofits that wanted to kind of um, incorporate and, and have their lives made easier and, and I really did as much of that work as I could and you know really made the pro bono partner my friend and would, I kind of look back on it still and think like oh my god I was so like, uppity that I like would take this partner and say come have coffee with me um, but I did and it worked because um, it, it helped me then later get to know him enough that I was then available to take an opportunity um, to do pro bono work in East Kimberley for the firm. Um, So um, there was a call out from the Aboriginal Legal Service um, in WA um, and this is in 2011 um, and that was because there was a stolen wages reparation scheme going on at the moment, at the time that was about to, to end. And basically what that scheme was, was to, for the government to find people who had, been subject to this horrendous policy that we had until the early 70s, which meant that um, uh, First Nations people weren't paid wages for the work that they did. And instead, the government held their wages on trust, sort of wages in his um, And the trust was obviously never given <laughs> to people. So, you know, and people were earning, you know, maybe a dollar a day, but that dollar a day was going to a government trust and people never saw it. And you know people were doing pretty serious backbreaking kind of farm work um, and domestic work, um, getting paid a dollar a day or maybe some food. Um, but the government decided, oh we actually well they didn 't decide they were forced to realize that they actually needed to pay compensation for the for the monies that were stolen, the stolen wages, um, but the scheme was closing, and it didn 't have much time left to um, find people who might be eligible so there was a big call out um, for lawyers to go and help go into communities and meet with people and see whether they might be eligible under the scheme and whether they wanted to claim wages under the scheme. And so I spent, um, time in East Kimberley, um, both in Kununurra and then in other remote communities like Balgo, um, meeting with people and communities and, um, trying to provide legal services. And that was a really, um, opening experience for this white girl. Um, and I, you know, I'd worked at the ALS in Canberra and like I, you know, had family friends who were from the Aboriginal community, but I really like I was in a bubble of not really knowing of not getting it um, and not getting the extent and the recency of traumatic policies um, and the contemporary nature of policies, because even the stolen wages system itself that we were trying to um, implement was really deeply flawed um, and, and essentially racist um, in its construction. Um, And so what that meant was I spent, you know, just days and days and days sitting with people taking their oral histories, essentially, um, in order to get the information needed for them to be able to submit the relevant forms to government to be able to be potentially eligible for a $2,000 compensation payment, which is pitiful and nowhere near what what people ought to have been entitled to. Um, But that was a real, um, you know, it was a real game changer for me. And I realised after that trip that... While I had been kind of open minded as to what I did after corporate law and that I knew that I wanted to do something you know i guess social justicey and related to politics and policy i was I kind of had been agnostic about what that was, and then after that experience, it was just like a total watershed for me where you know I woke up I guess and started to look around and and see more deeply um what was going on and I knew you know that i I had to leave Clayton Newts and I left Clayton Newts not long after that. Um, and actually subsequently worked with another lawyer who did the same program as I did and also left not long afterwards. So I think it's like sort of, it's sort of an enlightenment moment that you have and then, and then you do leave and you don't look back and, and I didn't look back. They're losing all their staff
0: through sending them (laughs) out on this program. (laughs) Um, but yeah, you, you didn't look back. You went on to do heaps of stuff after leaving Clayton Newt's and it was more social justice Uh You spent a couple of years working for GetUp, which was a huge deal. And then you go on to create the Grata Fund. Isabel, for someone who might not know what the Grata Fund is, can you explain how it functions?
1: I guess it's by way of comparison, it kind of makes the most sense. So um The reason I was starting to look at the, the the creation of grata Fund was the question of like why doesn't Australia seem to have this strong culture of strategic litigation the way that the u s and other countries do like what's going on here why like do we is, is it because we don't have a human rights act at a federal level like what is it um and the the answer to that is kind of complicated um but Grata Funders really addressed to, to bridge that gap. And, and what we do have in Australia is this like amazing community of pro bono lawyers, so people who do legal work for free, both for corporate firms, for small firms, you know, mum and dad firms, and and then a huge, amazing community legal sector as well, which is you know people like the Aboriginal Legal Service and so on, who provide free legal services. And so we have these amazing lawyers. And then we have this really dynamic campaign community in Australia of advocates and, and grassroots campaigners and like quite well-resourced campaign outfits as well. Um, and there was a gap. I was like, why are these guys not working together to make litigation happen more? I mean, there were a little bit, um, and we do have an amazing history of strategic litigation, actually. Like the Marbo case is probably the best example of strategic litigation in the world ever, um, which you know, was the case that found that Terra was a lie. Um, Eddie Mabo from um, the Torres Strait Island brought that case um, and what Grata Fund does essentially is it bridges the gap between the, the litigators and the campaigners and movements to try and find ways to bring litigation that has a high impact um, and create systemic change on issues that are often politically insurmountable so things like climate change or remote First Nations housing, or issues of democracy that, you know, you can advocate till you're blue in the face, but you can't get any change. And actually, if you, if you get into court, you actually find a way of, of actually forcing the government and corporate leaders to do something different. Um, And so the way that we do that is we've kind of got three parts to the work that we do. Um, Legal strategy, so working with um, communities and lawyers to develop great legal strategy and litigation strategy, Um, campaign strategy. So for us, it's really important that the litigation isn't by itself. It's really part of a broader social movement or campaign. and, And that's because the law has to be led by the movements, not the other way around. Um, Lawyers shouldn't be ones telling everyone really what to do. It's the people who are are affected by the issues and and who are leading the movements that that know what legal strategy is is most appropriate for them, given the broader context. Um, And then the final thing that we do is the money. So the money is like the big, big reason why Australia doesn't have as... as, um, prolific a litigation, uh, a strategic litigation culture, as you see, like in the US or in the UK or Germany or South Africa, really all over the world. Um, And so what we do is relieve the financial barriers to court. So um, we work with lawyers who do their stuff for free, but there's actually some other complicated parts of, of bringing litigation that are really costly. Um and so in the last few years we've we've provided over a million dollars in in funding for for high impact litigation.
0: And that funding does that come from the government or do you function like an NGO?
1: Yeah, we're a charity. Um we take tax deductible donations. Um <laughs> and um no, you I mean it that's part of the problem. I mean, you can't it, it's really difficult to litigate against the commonwealth or or any government if you're funded by them and you know it's this tricky thing because on the one hand legal services should be funded and and they should be a public service just as as education should be a public service and health should be that legal help needs to be as well because it's so fundamental in every aspect of our lives um but the the catch-22 of that can be that if you're completely dependent on government funding, it can it can make the calculation of, of litigating the government really complicated. So we um, are really fortunate to um, have um, beautiful people who donate to try and make these cases happen, which has been really wonderful.
0: Amazing. And, yeah, I'll put links to Be Able To Donate on the programs page on <laughs> <in> FBIradio.com. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about litigating the government. Let's talk about taking the government to task. You've achieved so many things with the Grada Fund and if I had more time today I would go through all of them but the one that I am really interested in is the freedom of information law which we have in Australia kind of as an accountability tool that allows us to shine some light on the way that decisions are made but you know, it, it's not always very transparent, and it doesn't actually work that well. And that's something that you've been addressing with the Grada Fund. Tell me about that. How are you taking that problem to task?
1: So, for our organisation, we're focused on a whole bunch of different issues, um, which are often intersecting. So, climate change issues, human rights issues, and democracy issues, and. The way that we figure out what we want to work on um, is really in consultation with civil society. So we spend a lot of time figuring out like, what are the core problems that are affecting people in an intersectional way. Um, and so within the democracy sphere um, Australia has like kind of alarmingly slid, slid down a lot of rankings in terms of our um, democracy and the quality of our democracy um, and and one of the and in the quality of accountability which we can see you know you can see that from politics today the degree of obfuscation and the degree of um, of consequences or lack thereof for really inappropriate behavior um, of politicians particularly um, and one of the core issues is our freedom of information system not working properly. So for people who don't know what that is, it's basically how you find out anything that the government's done, unless you get like a whistleblower. So you're allowed to, under our laws, write to the government and say, hey, you made this decision about that coal mine. We want to see the reasons that you made that decision and we want to see a bit more evidence or like, you know, did you have interactions with the coal mine? What, did, what was said, for example? And what, what we found is that there's just been a really dramatic degradation of that system. So there are a list of reasons basically in the FOI Act, in the law that says, you know, these are excuses that you can give that are legitimate. So like the government can say like, oh, we can't give you that because it's commercial incompetence, for example, like there are a bunch of them. And what we have found through our research is that they are using... Um, in particular about five different categories of excuses in a way that we think is actually unlawful. So um, one excuse, an example, is a change of minister. So at the moment what the government is saying is if you change ministers, so your minister stops being, you know, the Attorney General, for example, um, after a a kind of rape allegation scandal, um, all of the documents that were um, sought through the Freedom of Information Act cease to exist for the purposes of the act. What? Yeah, I know, it sounds like yeah. Orwellian and insane, yeah. but it's the case. So, you know, whether you are a refugee advocate or a journalist trying to find out more about procurement or um, a First Nations advocate, like any person really trying to find out anything thing about their lives that is like of really huge public consequence, if the minister has changed portfolios, the information disappears for the purposes of freedom of information. Um, And that's an example of one where we actually think the legal basis for that's actually probably pretty dodgy. Um, But there are other examples of it as well. You know, there's a new one at the moment. There's a pretty terrifying bill in Parliament at the moment, which is about National Cabinet. So during COVID, um, the government started a new kind of intergovernmental body that was between the states and the federal government. Replacing the old one, which was called Coag, and the new one is called National Cabinet. And I know it sounds so boring, but stick with me because it really matters. Okay. So National Cabinet is the is the organization is the is the government body that has decided everything about like vaccine rollouts, like coordination of between states and territories on the vaccines and on COVID, like like the gas led recovery, like all of those decisions are made by National Cabinet, and this new National Cabinet. And you, in in previous years, forever under Coag you would be able to get that information. You'd be able to apply for it under FOI. And the government has decided, oh no, actually this is part of this other exemption now. So you can't get any of that information. So you can't get any information on vaccines, on the rollout, on any stuff ups, any accountability. Poof, it's gone. Yeah. Um, and so Rex Patrick, a senator, took that to court and basically said, we, I think this is unlawful and he won. But the government's response to him winning the case is to try and change the legislation, which is what they're doing at the moment. Mm. So they kind of will go to pretty extreme lengths in order to try and um, hide information from the public. And you've got to think like, <laughs> Obviously, you can, You don't want, I can understand the mentality of being a government and not wanting embarrassing things to come out that easily, right? Like, you can kind of, like, in this current political context, as, like, wrong as that is, you can kind of see how that happens, but... The degree to which the government is currently trying to degrade our ability to access um, information about things that affect people's real lives is really pretty appalling.
0: So tell me if I'm wrong, but the way that I understand it is that the hit list that the Grata Fund has, each item on that hit list is one of those FOI exemptions, which you take to court one by one. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's our plan for the FOI work. Yeah. So um, what we do is we'll work with other partners though. So everything that we do is partnered. We don't go to court ourselves. We're sort of more like the producer of the movie rather than the actor or the director. Okay. Okay. So we've kind of identified that these are five areas that we actually think if we got them to court they might fall over. And if they fall over, that's hugely important across so many different issues that we work on and for so many people in civil society and for affected communities from so many different groups because it means that they can actually get start start getting information on um, government policies and, and seeking accountability. I, I mean, I'll give you an example of, of how this can work. So um, one of my colleagues previously worked at Amnesty International and she used, uh, Amnesty International Australia, and she used the FOI system in years gone by to, gather information about watch houses and and children, Aboriginal children in police watch houses in Queensland. And what they found was like horrific abuse, like, oh, I'm not even gonna go into it because it's all the horrible stuff that you can imagine. Um, But as a result of that FOI being released, Amnesty and Four Corners did a report on it and um, the government immediately announced an inquiry into those watch houses. The issue of youth incarceration and especially Aboriginal youth incarceration is far from resolved but it's an example of where through the FOI system information was able to come to light that actually really changed the lives of a lot of people who were you know actually being held in really abhorrent conditions as kids in in prisons. Isabel that's so
0: incredible and yeah it's the reason that I did want to delve into the FOI stuff because it pertains to so many other issues and if we had A little bit more time today, I'd want to talk about some of your other big cases with the Grata Fund because you've dealt with remote First Nations housing rights, you've dealt with water rights for remote First Nations peoples, you've taken on disability discrimination in the space of an FPOS terminal rollout, you've taken on facilitating kids on the autism spectrum in schools, so many things. I'll put links to the Grata Fund on the program's page on fbiradio.com. So if you did want to find out anything more about these cases that Isabel and her team have
1: taken on, that's the place to do it. Isabel, what's the next song you've picked for today? Yeah, Neon Moon. <laughs> I love Maisha. I think she's just amazing. Her music is that perfect quality for me of being just something that you want to listen to and being beautiful, but also having a, a message and, and a meaning as, as part of it. And I think she's really part of this current new wave of First Nations talent that's that's coming up through the ranks, You know, whether it's artists or activists. Um, and, and I think she's kind of, she, she is, to me, symbolic of, of change that's happening in the country that I think we can all be really proud of. And, and um, I think, you know, really seeing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as, like, leaders of our culture is, is something that's so important and, and Myesha absolutely is, I think, that.
0: On Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5, this is Neon Moon by Maisha and the Warrabinda Singers. Oh, good oh, I'll be all right long as Lie lies from a neon, neon. That was Myesha teaming up with the Wurubinda Singers for Neon Moon. And you heard it right here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5, where I'm joined by the founder of the Grata Fund, Isabel Reinecke. We've spent the entirety of this show talking about your successes and all of the good things in your life and all of the things that you've achieved. But it hasn't always looked like that. Your health has actually presented some pretty
1: big hurdles for you. Isabel, tell me about those yeah i um contracted chronic fatigue in my kind of mid 20s and um that was you know pretty traumatizing illness and it's a bit of a mysterious illness and and it's still one that it's it's almost impossible to explain to anyone who hasn't lived through it or, or lived with someone closely who's lived through it um but that's something that um often hits type A women, apparently. So maybe I was like a sitting duck for it. Um, and, and you know, just really, it meant that I had to stop work for about six months um, and then gradually found my way back to being able to maintain a job. But But it kind of had meant that I needed to, actually make a jo- a choice sort of between whether I wanted to be able to keep building a career or wanted to have, you know, a, a more balanced life. And I didn't choose a more balanced life. I chose that I wanted to keep building my career. And I think that was um, really just because I, it wasn't because I was like, oh, I want to have some big career as much as it was sort of the issues that I was working on and the stuff that I was working on. I was like, I, you can't leave that. Like, it's too horrific and um you know it's too motivating in a way like when you see massive injustice on a daily basis and you you realize you have the power to do something about it like it's sort of I think it's almost immoral to be able to turn your back on that so and I didn't and and what that really meant it it taught me a lot about you know friendships and and you know what what mattered to me in a friendship and and what mattered to me as as being able to be a friend and, and a partner and I think um it, it did eventually force a reckoning in terms of my work-life balance, but it didn't for a long time. I mean, for a long time, it just meant I cut out everything of my life that wasn't my work. Um, and I, I don't think people knew. I mean, I didn't tell anyone at work, nobody at get up really knew until after I'd left that I, that I had chronic fatigue that throughout that time. And it just would mean that I would work and come home and then I would just sleep whenever I wasn't at work pretty much. Um, and it kind of took me six years to find a cure or a treatment, um, which I found at the end of 2019 and, and has worked for me. Um, but I realize I'm very fortunate, you know, there are lots of people suffering and continue to suffer. And, you know, chronic fatigue is similar to to long COVID actually, there are, there are a lot of similarities. So I mean, my only hope out of that is really that um it it means there's an injection of of funding into research and and what to do about it because it's just absolutely debilitating and, and it destroys people's lives yeah it sounds that way and i guess
0: if in the time that you're not at work all you're able to do is sleep it probably makes it really difficult to get simple tasks done did you have much support
1: during that time my now husband really was my kind of key support we had we met probably six months before I got sick. So I'm lucky that he's stuck around. (laughs) Um, And I've only really been a couple of years kind of free of it. But he was a huge support to me and, and, you know, made it possible for me to do what I did. And, you know, and he still does. He's extraordinarily supportive. But I think, you know, that took a toll on him and took a toll on our relationship. We didn't get that, like, you know, we got our first six months and then I got sick. So we didn't get that, like, first, like, year or two of just, like, finding the sun. It was sort of like the first, like after the first six months, I was seriously ill. I had to have a knee reconstruction as well around the same time. So I was like kind of this invalid, but um, we managed to be able to find a dynamic that wasn't like carer and carey, which was important, I think. And, And he ultimately was the person who pushed me to find a way to find a treatment. I mean, like I was obviously desperate to find a treatment and, you know, with chronic fatigue, because there are no clear medical treatments, you end up cycling through like every possible random thing and trying to be like very perfect about what you eat. Like don't drink too, like don't drink more than a glass of wine because it might trigger something or like, you know, don't eat anything with preservatives in case it triggers something. Like it's this whole crazy like um, mindset that has to come with it because you're so fragile, really. Like you feel so vulnerable to the world around you. Um, but he kind of basically pushed me at the end and said, you know, if you want to have a family, we can't do this. If you want to keep, you either need to find a way to, to fix chronic fatigue. And, and, you know, he knew that that was almost an impossible thing to ask. It's like an impossible thing to ask somebody with chronic fatigue, but he said, you either have to do that, or you're going to have to wind back from your career, or we don't have a family. Like, you know, you kind of need to make a decision. And I wasn't. I was like, I wasn't prepared to walk back from my career for the same reasons that I've mentioned previously. Like, I just, you know, you can't, if you if you know you have power to be able to do something about something really horrific that's happening, like, you can't turn your back on that. It's just, you can't. Why well, I couldn't. And so it just meant that I tried everything and I tried, like, the last possible thing that I thought would possibly work, but it worked for me and, um, and I'm grateful to him for making me make that choice because I think otherwise I would have just, like, put my head in the sand and, like, just tried to make it all possible. But... Yeah, I would have probably killed myself in the process.
0: And yeah, you talked about meeting your now husband six months before you fell ill. Let's go to that meeting with a song. You've chosen a track by Mazzy Star to play on Out of the Box today. Isabel, tell me about this one.
1: Uh, So this is, I mean, such an FBI story in a way. My husband and I (laughs) met at Oxford Art Factory. (laughs) Um, <laughs> um, and the rest was history But um, this Mazzy Star song Was a song that he played one night in our apartment And it was kind of the song that The moment when I really remember Feeling like viscerally and still feel When I hear this song That it was the moment I realised that I was in love with him <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's Fade Into You By Mazzy Star On FBI Radio 94.5 Strange. As chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Isabel Reinecke. The song was called
1: Fade Into You. It was by Mazzy Starr. Isabel, what does the future look like for you? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm pregnant, so that is definitely some part of my future. Thank you. I haven't decided yet whether it's an act of hope against climate change or like total naivety and my my future daughter is going to be like why what were you thinking by giving birth to me in this world but um hopefully hopefully that won't be how she feels um we've still got 10 years to turn climate change around so god willing we'll do it um and yeah, um I guess so that 's in my immediate future and and then running grata fund and and growing growing our organization and our impact hopefully and and building more and bigger and better cases and and working even more closely with communities and um, I think that 's really you know for me a big aspiration for grata Fund that we um, get to the point where we you know have community organizers and we and we have people in our team who are working really regularly on the ground with communities who are facing injustice because those are the people who know better than any lawyer you know, what's needed to, to fix a situation. And, and that's really where I hope to take Grata Fund eventually.
0: Do you have any injustices in particular that you're looking at in the future of Grata Fund?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a... <laughs> It's a pretty long laundry list, I've got to say, but our big our big focuses at the moment um, are particularly First Nations justice and its intersection with climate justice. So that's a going to be a big area for us over the next few years. Um, you know, First Nations people in Australia are, are on the front lines of climate change harms that are happening now. Like we remember the bushfires, the bushfire summer, um, and we think of that as like, oh, my God, climate change is here. But for a, a lot of First Nations communities, especially in the Torres Strait, but also all over Central and Coastal Aboriginal communities are seeing um, and facing pretty severe impacts that are happening now and and Australia will be worse affected by climate change than than any other developed nation in the world And, and also I think has the most to gain through through adopting you know different climate policies as well in terms of restructuring what our economy looks like and how it works and building a better future so that's a big focus and then Um, The other part of that is continuing our work um, with our partners, Australian Lawyers for Remote Aboriginal Rights in Central Australia, in the communities we're working with there, Laramba and Santa Teresa and Boralula, Um, uh, particularly in Laramba and Santa Teresa working on remote First First Nations housing rights. Um, It's pretty disgusting. the the current public policy in terms of First Nations housing in remote communities and and it shouldn't be that way and and we actually think that we will be able to use the courts and the law as as a a lever for change to to really turn that, that situation
0: around. Incredible. Well, yeah, I'll put some links up for the Grata Fund on the programs page on FBIRadio.com. So, if anyone listening did want to check it out or maybe support Grouter Fund, <laughs> that's a way you can do that. Isabel Reinecke, thank you so much for joining me on Out
1: of the Box today. Thank you so much for having me. What song would you like to finish things off on? Uh, this is the greatest song ever in my book. It's Feeling Good by Nina Simone, and it's just like the ultimate song of. Remembering despite however dark the world is, like, you know, the the rebellion is that you've got to keep going and and you've got to um, make space for yourself to be able to keep going over the long haul.
0: Amazing. We'll dive into that one right now on FBI Radio 94.5. It's Feeling Good by Nina Simone. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you do want to listen back to this episode, you can listen on the programs page on fbiradio.com or via the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Big shout outs to Emma Higgins for producing this episode and stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. you see, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I feel. Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel. It's a new dome, it's a new day, it's a new Oh, mm-hmm.